Luke 19, we're going to continue in our series, uh, Future Church. Each, each week, we're looking at a challenge that we're facing in our culture currently, especially as we're reemerging from this global pandemic. And then we want to lay out a vision for the kind of alternative society uh, we can be as a community following Jesus. And then at the end, we talk about a practice uh, that has to do with our rule of life. Remember, at the very first teaching, I shared uh, the logo. And our, our church logo has these kind of inward arrows and outward arrows, right? So there's four inward arrows, four outward arrows. And the outward arrows talk about our rule of life as it pertains to our world to bring renewal. Well, today we're going to talk about our first outward-facing um, uh, arrow, the outward-facing practice, and it is hospitality. So today I want to teach on being a community of peacemakers in a culture of political polarization through the practice of hospitality. That is a giant sermon title. And I have a lot of notes, so we're going to just dive right in. Uh, let's start by reading uh, the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19, 1 through 9, and we'll eventually get here uh, this morning. Verse 1, I'll read this to you and I'll pray. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but he was short and he could not see over the crowd. So... So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore uh, fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down and at once welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here I am. And now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back uh, four times the amount. And Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the son of man, Jesus, the son of man, came to seek and save the lost. This is God's word. Yes, amen. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that this morning you would make space for us to show up as we are. It's kind of uh, one of the, maybe the benefits of having church in our home over the last year is that we don't have to put on a face to show up to Sunday morning. We don't have to put on um, like our week was amazing, our life is going great. We just roll out of bed and uh, some of us don't even brush our teeth. We just grab the computer and just like show up as we are. And there's something really beautiful about that, God, because you welcome us as we are. That's exactly the story of Zacchaeus. You, you welcomed him as he was, and you didn't even ask him to change. You just said, I want to have dinner with you. And I pray that this hospitable invitation would be handed out to every single person listening this morning. That we would say yes to the invitation to commune with you, to dine with you, to have fellowship with you, God. And Lord, this would change us and make us hospitable people as well. Anoint me as I teach this and um, help us to learn the way of Jesus together. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Who did you, who did you lose this last year? I'm not talking about uh, who did you lose due to COVID. That's tragic enough. Who did you lose due to, due to all the hostility this last year? Due to the polarization of politics, 
the masking versus anti-masking, vaccination versus anti-vac people, the racial crisis and how to react, or maybe just conspiracy theories. Who did you lose? Did you cut ties with a family member or a church member? Did you lose a best friend or someone close? Did you distance yourself from a coworker or maybe a roommate? Someone you still have to see, but not, you don't have to like them anymore. I've been pretty open over this past year about the loss I've experienced this year, losing friends and confidants alike, people who promised me and I promised them that we're in this together for life. But maybe you find this question too dramatic. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're so dramatic. Or maybe too triggering, because this is really, really too close to home for you. So maybe a better question might be, who did you block this year? Who did you mute? Who did you unfollow? Who did you distance yourself from because you couldn't take their input anymore, their feed, their texts, their calls? We don't need to be an expert. We don't need an expert to tell us that. We are more divided as a nation than ever. Our nation remains horribly divided, and what's been even most heartbreaking is to see the division getting into our churches this last year. In the church, there have been people that have left due to the fact that the church hasn't disobeyed the CDC and continued to gather during the pandemic, citing things like, God will protect us from this plague. There have been people who have left because they believe their church didn't say enough and do enough about the racial, racial reckoning that was happening this summer. And of course, there are people who left because they thought the church was saying too much. There have been people who have left because of QAnon. I don't really have anything more to say about that. that. <laughs> And there have been people who have left their faith community because their pastor or the church didn't outright support Trump or because they did. And when I say leave the church, it's kind of hard to casually leave the church or leave friendships or leave family due to circumstances like this that we're all living through. Therefore, if we're honest, we didn't just leave, we left angry and hurt and with unresolved bitterness. I guess what I'm saying is that the division in our nation plays out in our communities. It feels like our opponents no longer live on the other side of the country. We feel this division in our homes and in our family and even in our churches. And what happens in a digital age of tribalism where our social media apps know that confirmation bias and tribalism is good for their business is we begin to think that those who don't see the world or the church or the nation like we do are a threat to us. They are a threat to the world, they are a threat to the church, and they are a threat to our nation. A recent survey from political scientists found that 60% of voters think members of the other party constitute a threat to America. Not only are you just from another party, you are a threat to everything that this nation stands for. More than 40% of them would call the other party evil, and 20% think the other party are animals. Now, we could take this survey and we can apply it to almost anything that we're divided over these days. As I said in my intro teaching a few weeks ago, the political polarization that we're living through right now is insane. A mentor of mine shared with me that sociologists used a survey question to get a pulse on what divides us. The question is, who are you most afraid of your child bringing home for you to meet? In the 1960s, the number one answer was someone from a different race. Today, the answer is someone from the other political party. And the thing that inevitably happens when we live under this amount of division is that we perceive strangers as threats. 
Division turns neighbors and strangers into a potential danger more often than not, and it's up to the other person to prove themselves wrong. Like, prove us wrong. Prove me wrong that you're not a threat. That's basically our posture to people that we don't know right now. We had a family in our COVID social bubble over a couple weeks ago for pizza. We're having pizza in our house, and as soon as they got to our house, they got a notification on their phone that their ring, um, their doorbell ring camera said a package was delivered to their home. And it was a big box, and after some digging, they found out this was something that they weren't expecting for another week, and it showed up unexpectedly. The good news was it was in. It came early. The bad news was it was just sitting on the porch. The whole time they were over, they had this, their ring app open, making sure no one stole their package. I don't know if you've ever done this before. Every single person who drove by their house, they would look and like, oh, no, no, don't park, don't park, don't park. Oh, they parked, they parked. Okay, let's see what they do. And then they would walk up, okay, walk away, walk away. Everyone was a threat. Every single person who approached their front door was a threat. Now, it's funny, but all of us do this if you have this like, app on, on your phone of your front door. Every single person walks is a threat to, your, to whatever is happening. Like, are you going to break in? Are you going to steal something? Are you going to steal the, the Amazon package that Amazon like, snuck under my doormat and now there's a giant doormat over a box? Like, that doesn't make any sense, like sort of thing. But this is how we see people right now, as potential threats. Henry Nouwen writes in his book, Reaching Out, Is it possible for Christians to offer an open, hospitable space where strangers can cast off their strangeness and become our fellow human beings? The movement from hostility to hospitality is hard and full of difficulties. Our society seems to be increasingly full of fearful, defensive, aggressive people anxiously clinging to their property and inclined to look at their surrounding world with suspicion, always expecting an enemy to suddenly appear intrude and do harm. But still, this is our vocation, to convert the enemy into a guest and create the free and fearless space where brotherhood and sisterhood can be formed and fully experienced. Now in writes, this is our vocation. This is our call. That's what vocation means. This is our call as followers of Jesus, to convert the enemy into a guest. Now, of course, political polarization and our suspicion of strangers is nothing new. Now one wrote this like forever ago, but it sounds like it was written yesterday. But I think we can all, all can agree that the digital revolution has intensified our divisions. But there remains a better way of living into the world. And it's this movement that now one talks about from hostility to hospitality. We have to make movements as followers of Jesus from hostility to hospitality. And this movement will not be easy, he writes. This movement will be hard and full of difficulties, but it's worth it. It's necessary, and it's our vocation as followers of Jesus. This is the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is the way of hospitality. Jesus, who gave his life, literally gave his life, talk about not being easy, who gave his life to turn enemies into family, Jesus, who said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, if you read that verse in context, the blessing right before it is, blessed are the pure in heart, and the blessing right after it is, blessed are those who are persecuted. It's almost as as if in order to function as a peacemaker, it requires both pure hearts and a willingness to suffer persecution. Blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus was a peacemaker. He was not a peacekeeper, 
He was a peacemaker. There's a difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. Peacekeepers think hunger games, right? The job is to keep the status quo even when the status quo is unjust. That's a peacekeeper, right? A peacemaker's job is to bring two enemies together and work for repentance and reconciliation to turn enemies into family. This is what Jesus does. In our text today, Luke 19, Jesus is on his way through Jericho. Now, Jericho has a lot of history in the, the canon of Scripture. Um, during this point in Jesus' ministry, huge crowds followed him wherever he went, hoping to get a miracle or a new teaching or maybe even some miraculous food or whatever Jesus was doing that day. As Jesus gets outside of the city of Jericho, we meet a man named Zacchaeus. Uh, Melissa Weinich said in her teaching on this text in June, um, think Danny DeVito when you think of um, Zacchaeus. And I think that's very accurate, okay? Um, We're told Zacchaeus is both short and a chief tax collector. Now, this this doesn't have the impact it would have had in the first century. Um, Zacchaeus was the most deplorable person in that crowd that day. He was hated by everyone around him. We always love that Jesus reaches out to sinners, but as long as the sinners are sinners like us, like someone who sins doing the things we sometimes do, we get that. We love when Jesus does that. But, but see, Zacchaeus wasn't like many other people. He was a traitor who extracted money to support the Roman Empire, which held down the Jewish people in their own homeland. This is the category of today and the social stigma of a pedophile or terrorist in our day like a different category of deplorable person. This was a true enemy of every single person in that crowd that day. And though he was wealthy and probably very powerful, he was hated for who he was and what he did. Look at verse three and four. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since he was coming that way. Now, in Sunday school, we learned this lesson in Sunday school. This is like Zacchaeus' Sunday school fodder, right? It's such a good story. Sunday school, we're taught that Zacchaeus was short, and he tried to jump to see over the, the crowd, but he couldn't do it, right? But there's a few problems with that reading of this text. First, in the original language, his short stature might actually point to his age, not his physical height. And in a parade, like Jesus was basically, this was a parade, You don't need to be tall to see it. You just have to go down the road a bit and just wait there. And he did go down the road, but he didn't wait there. He actually climbed a sycamore tree. Why? Rather than seeing this scene and thinking that Zacchaeus was simply too short, this actually has more to do with the crowd than with Zacchaeus. Scholar Joel Green says, it is not simply that Zacchaeus cannot see over the crowd. Rather, the crowd itself presented an obstacle to him. On account of their negative assessment of Zacchaeus, the people refused him the privilege of seeing Jesus as he passed by. The people refused to let Zacchaeus in. Classic, this is classic hostility over hospitality. And we all know this too well. Cultural critic Ken Myers argues that the kind of atheism that we experience in America today is not a conclusion, but more of a mood. This is such a great observation and distinction. It's not a, not a conclusion like, I've concluded there is no God. No, it's more of a mood. Like, well, I don't know. There might be a God. I don't really know. Now, if this is true, 
If most people we know at our work and in our neighborhood carry more of a mood of atheism than a conclusion of atheism, then the only way we can disrupt it is not with well-crafted arguments, but with presence. But far too often, we're like this crowd, boxing out people who don't think like us or live like us or behave like us. Instead of the presence of hospitality, a lot of us carry with us hostility, the hostility of our current moment, everywhere we go, online or in real life. But thank God Zacchaeus was adamant. He climbs up on a tree to get a glimpse of Jesus so the crowd wouldn't bother him, basically. So the crowd wouldn't elbow his, his chest as he was trying to get through or step on his feet or whatever. He got out of the way of the crowd so he can see Jesus. And in verse 5 and 6, it says, Jesus looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down, and at once he welcomed him gladly. Staying at your house, welcoming, this is all hospitality language. This is called actually reverse hospitality. Some of you know all about reverse hospitality. It's not come over my house, but I'm going to come over your house. It's that sort of thing, right? <laughs> Which is beautiful and very Christ-like. Like, I'm coming over your house today. You're like, I don't know if you could do that. Jesus did it, and so I'm, I'm doing this. This is what I'm doing now. Now, as we zoom out, we get to see what's really going on here. By inviting himself over to this man's house, the so-called enemy, Jesus hopes that in the context of a shared meal, he'll get to forge a relationship with Zacchaeus. He just wants to build a bridge. He just wants to establish a relationship. In the book that we've recommended before when we taught on hospitality, A Meal with Jesus, Tim Chester points out that Luke uses this verbal formula, quote, the son of man came twice, once in our text, but in another place as well. And it's very important to understand this verbal formula and pick up on what's happening here. So for example, look at these two verses on the screen, Luke 19.10 and Luke 7.34. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. The son of man has come eating and drinking. He said these two, this verbal formula of the Son of Man came is important. The first one, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, is a statement of purpose, his mission. This is the what Jesus has come to do. He has come to seek and save the lost. But the second one is the method. How did Jesus come to seek and save the lost? The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. <laughs> Some of you are like, oh, wait. This is what it means like to do like evangelism is meals. Yeah, like this was Jesus' form of like welcoming in the lost. This is a statement of the method of how this is done. So the question is, what did Jesus do and to do to live out his mission to seek and save the lost? And the answer is by eating and drinking. What New Testament scholars call table fellowship. And the meals that Jesus shared with people, the so-called tax collectors and sinners, carried a weight that helps us make sense of why the crowd started freaking out when Jesus invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house. New Testament scholar Scott Barchi, whatever, um, says this, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one has shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. 
Jesus invites himself over to share a meal with a deplorable enemy, an enemy that everyone jabbed in the stomach when he tried to get a glimpse of Jesus, an enemy that had no real chance to redeem himself nor his situation in life. No one would let him in. Now, humans haven't changed in like thousands of years. I don't know if you've known this. Like when we quote cancel someone, I know cancel culture is so like everyone talks about it, but when we do cancel people, there is no way for redemption. We do not allow redemption to happen. This is, things are not, haven't changed. I mean, if, if, he, if, if Zacchaeus lived in this time of social media, he would definitely, I mean, basically him climbing a sycamore tree was because he was canceled by the crowd. He could not get in. There was no way of redemption. There was no way for him to make, even if he wanted to say, I'm sorry for what I've done. I repent. I want to make it right. There would be no way. The result, though, of Jesus' invitation is that this enemy is turned into a guest. And this guest is given the free space to change. Look at verse eight through 10. Look, Lord, this is what Zacchaeus says. Look, here now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. This is change. He has repented. He has not just repented, but he's, make, he made, he's making restitution for his sin. I'm making it right. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. This man, too, is a, is a Jew. Because he, you know, he, 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 he slapped his Jewish brothers and sisters in the face by, by betting with the enemy, Rome. But Jesus says, no, bring him back in. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. What Jesus offered Zacchaeus was not an argument to why he was wrong and what he needed to change. Jesus didn't even ask anything of him other than to share a meal and start a relationship. Now, hear what I'm saying. It is important to hold people accountable. I know people will email me, isn't it important to hold people accountable? <laughs> yeah, yes, it is very important. But what we've done is we just do the accountability. We don't make space for people to change. We just want to call people out on how deplorable they are. We don't give them space for them to change. This is where the redemption of Jesus is very, very needed in our, not just in our culture, but it should be spearheaded by the church. We give people the space to change. Now, in context, how did this happen? Change happened through the simple act of hospitality. Hospitality, the last time I taught on hospitality here at, at our church, um, which is something so core to our church community, I began my sermon with the line, hospitality is so trendy right now. And I laughed out loud when I read my old notes this last week, and I read that phrase, hospitality is trendy, because it's not trendy, it's scary. Like, now hospitality is scary. I mean, what a difference a, a year and a half makes, right? <laughs> hospitality is scary. I say hospitality, you're like, whoa, you mean COVID? You mean, like, disease? Like, what do you, what do you mean hospitality? No, no one's doing that. But the reason I'm teaching on this right now is because I believe, as well as others who put this, helped me put this sermon together, that hospitality will be the way we heal from whatever this last past year was. Hospitality will be the way that we heal. The word hospitality is a compound, compound word in Greek. It's two words, phileo, which means love, and xenos, which means stranger or foreigner. Phileo, xenos. It's literally the exact opposite of xenophobia. Hospitality is the opposite of xenophobia. It's the love of stranger, not the, not, not the fear of a stranger. 
It's the love of a stranger, the welcome of all as a guest. Henry Nouwen defined hospitality in the quote from above as the creation of free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Rosaria Butterfield, in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, an incredible book that I recommend to you if you're wanting to know more about hospitality. She says, um, hospitality is turning neighbors into neighbors, wait, turning enemies into neighbors and neighbors into family. Turning enemies into neighbors and neighbors into family. As followers of Jesus, we are invited to continue what Jesus started. Romans 12 says, practice hospitality. The word practice means do something with intense effort and with a definite purpose or goal. Practice this. This could be translated, be eager to show hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10 says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. How do we love each other deeply? Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. I mean, we read the ver- that first verse out of, kind of out of context, above all, love each other deeply. We need to love one another deeply. Well, how? Practice hospitality. Have people over your house. Hebrews 13, 22 says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. How? Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it, which is such a cool verse. I taught on this verse before on hospitality. I won't get into it now, but that verse. There's actually this threat that when you're entertaining a stranger, it could be an angel, and then later on Jesus says, it's actually me. Like, you're entertaining me. Like, that was me that you were doing that to. It's insane, but we don't have time to get into that today. This, that's a different sermon. I've already taught that one before, but anyway. So both 1 Timothy and Titus 1 have the practice of hospitality in the requirement for elders or leaders in the church. Now, it's funny. I mean, you and I have probably heard pastors being removed for heresy or an affair or like embezzling money, but I've never heard like Christianity Today break a, like a scandal. Like he, this pastor, he or she never invited their neighbors over their house for dinner, and they were excommunicated. Like, but it's, it's literally in that same thing. Show hospitality. Over and over again, we are commanded to practice hospitality. The recommended book that I said a second ago, Rosaria Butterfield's book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, in the third chapter of this book, she describes how she became a follower of Jesus. Butterfield was a a lesbian lit professor at Syracuse University whose specialty was postmodern critical theory. She was doing research for a book she was writing about how Christians are small-minded, uncharitable, and immoral. But to do this, she had to do two things. First, she had to start reading the Bible. And second, she had to actually spend time with people who believed the Bible. She had to spend time with Bible-believing Christians. After she wrote a scathing op-ed on Christians and patriarchy, a local pastor invited her over to their house for dinner and thus began a relationship with this pastor and his family of regular meals in their home that in the end brought her to faith in Jesus. Basically, they created for her free space where the stranger can become a friend. And now she's a writer as well as a former a foster parent and a homeschool mom and a wife of a Presbyterian pastor. That's all a true story. But her basic case is that the LGBTQ community does a way better job of welcoming strangers than the church. 
and that the church must recapture this ancient practice of our Christian heritage. We are far too known by what we're against than holding space for the stranger. She writes this, quote, radically ordinary hospitality, those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. We need radically ordinary hospitality. By radically ordinary hospitality, think not kinfolk, but just think come over my house, right? (laughs) So we think of hospitality as like, Everything has to be perfect. It's like, mat- like either it's like bohemian chic where everything's mismatched and fun or everything has to match and be perfect. Like this is kind of how we see it. But radically ordinary is like, what time are you coming over? Come over and you come over and there's still things laying out. You're like, welcome to my house. And you should grab a plate and help out. And I'm not going to do the dishes. We have to do them together. It's like that sort of thing, right? This is what she's talking about. Now, we as a church must be the ones who lead in this way without fear. As our world opens back up and people ache for community and a real face and real face-to-face relationship, the church has to lead in this. We need intentionality being the ones who create free space around a table and allow people to process what we all went through this last year. See, I'm, I'm convinced that most of the division that has happened over text and social media and emails this last year, especially in the church, has been due to the fact that we haven't been able to sit around a table and disagree in love or listen to a teaching on Sunday morning all in the same room that we don't agree with because God knows a lot of the teachings I've taught in the last month, a lot of people didn't agree with. But, we, but I, used to, I do that all the time. I don't know if you remember. Go back, listen to the last like, 10 years of catalog of teachings. I made you mad all the time. The difference is we were all in the same room together singing the same song and you could look at me in the face and know that I was a human being with like a family and you had a family and we were all together and then you met with your friends afterwards and you had a meal and you're like, I don't really agree with that. Oh, what, what part? Well, well, you balance that with, with this and that and this and this or come up to me and go, that was stupid. I'm like, maybe. <laughs> but that hasn't happened at all this last year. At all. We've been at home watching this on a, on a screen, shutting our laptop when we're done. I guess what I'm saying is that with the lack of hospitality over the past year, we have been actually been cultivating hostility because distance breeds suspicion. And that's 2020 in a nutshell. And as soon as we reach herd immunity or max vaccination, or basically as soon as our bodies are no longer threats to other bodies due to this pandemic, we must draw closer together physically. Now, I want to close with a couple practical things as we end. Okay, I'm almost done. Just a couple practical things. Now, we're, we're, we're basically the series is unpacking our rule of life. A rule of life is about getting the way of Jesus into the habits of our lives so we can do them without much energy and without much thinking. That's what a habit is, right? That's the point of the habit. This is the point of practicing the way of Jesus. So it becomes habituated into our bodies, into our weekly rhythms, into our schedules. 
for this rule, since it's an outward-facing rule, um, this, this rule will take other people. You can't practice alone like silence and solitude or even like scripture or, or like, you can't do this stuff alone, like fasting. You have to do with other people, which is actually quite beautiful. So here's our suggested entry-level practice of hospitality. I want to encourage our church to go on a walk with a neighbor or a member of our community this week. That's it. Go outside. Make space on your walk for social distance, obviously, but make space for this person to be welcomed. Keep a prayer list for those you're interceding for who you want to to come to know Jesus. Now, as we open back up, as our bodies become not weaponized anymore, the baseline practice of our community will be to invite somebody you know over your house, from your neighborhood, from your community, invite them over your house and eat a meal with you in person. Let's say once a month. That's like baseline. Like when, when it's safe, we want you all to start practicing around the table, bread and wine, a meal, eating and drinking with people in your community and keeping a prayer list for, and of, of interceding for those people that you want to know Jesus. We've said this before. As soon as our church opened up, we were in this room and we had way more people than that we had capacity in this room. And I would literally, if you remember, I would stand up in front of people and say, we don't have room for you. Go back to your church that you came from or we, you have to come back some other time. We don't have room for you anymore. What I was doing is I was asking our church not to bring people to church, which sounds weird. I'm like, bring them over to your house. Get them exposed to Christian community through your home. It doesn't have to be perfect. And then eventually invite them to church. Don't start. Level one should not be church. Invite them over your home first. Now, we can't do that right now, obviously, for a lot of us. We can't do that. In the meantime, hospitality is both practice and posture. Nowen says in his book, again, the one I quoted from, hospitality should not be limited to its literal sense of receiving a stranger in our house, although it's important and never to forget or neglect that, but as a fundamental attitude towards our fellow human being, which can be expressed in a great variety of ways. Hospitality should be an attitude that we express to one another. Now think about what are creative ways that you can embody the practice or at least posture, the posture of hospitality during COVID still, even though we're at like the tail end of it in the safest way. How do you start rehabituating your body to welcome the stranger? Maybe he's baking bread for a neighbor and hanging out on their stoop for a while as you deliver or going on a walk outside or hosting a sidewalk or stoop hang now that the time has changed and it's darker for longer or a park meetup where you bring the individually wrapped burritos or whatever. Think of, start thinking practically, how do we start habituating our bodies for hospitality? Now, two takeaways, two things I want you to take away from this. The first is this. I want to throw out to you right now something we've been working on as a staff, um, an idea for hospitality that has specifically to do with Holy Week, Easter. It's coming up. Easter's coming up in a few weeks. And Holy Week is the main event in the church, for, in the church calendar for Christians, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday, a week of journeying toward the cross of Christ and then celebrating the resurrection. And Holy Week's coming. It's just a few weeks away. And we're still in a pandemic. So we need to tap into some extra creativity about how we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus together. More to come on this, but I want to put a, like a unique thing on your radar as you're thinking about Holy Week this year. And we're calling them uh, Holy Week Pods. 
okay? Holy Week pods. Now listen. We know that we're still like going through this pandemic and people have like potted up with their families and their nanny share groups or their neighbors or their, you know, whatever. Because we all know we need a balance of human connection and pandemic safety. Now, usually people make arrangements to get tested before visiting one another or not and seeing, you know, each other through safe ways leading up to it. I, all of that is true, but here's, here's our invitation to you. Now that Holy Week is upon us, we thought we'd encourage you to take the option of potting up to go through Holy Week with a safe small group together. Identify another family or a few close friends for you to specifically go through Holy Week or make space for the stranger. We know not everyone will be down for this idea. We get that. But we want you to choose uh, a time to go together with where your um, Thursday night before before Easter is traditionally our Seder night meal. Thursday night Seder meal. To go and have this Seder meal with your pod, with your Holy Week pod. And like, we're, we're gonna be safe, we're gonna commit ourselves to each other, we're gonna, go, we're gonna journey through Holy Week together. It might be the Sunday before Holy Week starts, you watch uh, the gathering together, and then Thursday night, uh, Seder, good, uh, Seder meal, and then, and we'll give you all the stuff to do this, and then Friday night is Good Friday, watch the stream service together, receive communion, and then Easter Sunday, um, well, I guess we, get, we're gonna, we, we, we have locked in a spot for Easter to meet outdoors, a few hundred of us. So we'll be gathering outside for Easter. Um, really excited, more details to come on this. Um, distance outside, you know, weather permitting or not, we can just do it like Woodstock or whatever, just like rain and mud and grossness. But anyways, we're outside. Uh, either, and we'll, have, we'll still have a live stream, either show up to outdoor Easter together or stream it from your house together. As our Holy Week page goes live in a few, in, a, in, a, in the coming weeks, we want you to start thinking about how do we start practicing hospitality in tangible ways as we celebrate Easter. So that's the first thing. That's the first like, tangible takeaway we want you to th- start thinking about. The second is this. Let's not give up on hospitality. Let's not give up on hospitality. A couple weeks ago, I sat through a presentation by a well-known Christian leader who is a firm believer that the future of the church won't be about physical presence and locations, but more of a hybrid church where there are some in-person gatherings but the rest of it's online, streamed into homes. At one point he said, if you don't get on board as a church in this digital revolution, you'll be J.C. Penney in the age of Amazon. And he also said that people don't have screen fatigue, just ask Instagram and TikTok. So anyway, so I sat through this like as I was like, like, scra- like scratching into my desk and like clawing into my desk. Um, now, he could be right, um, but I don't think he is. My good friend, John Mark, who I'm teaching this uh, series with, and I had a very passionate conversation about this last week, and we're like, we think, we think he's just dead wrong. We think the future is less digital and more embodied, less bits and more atoms, it's higher sacrifice, not lower sacrifice. I mean, we've all read Ready Player One. We know how this, that ends, right? I mean, cameras right here, cameras 
and the internet and COVID has been a concession, not a conviction. It's been like, yeah, I I guess we have to, but it's not a conviction of ours. We think the future looks more like more like a table and less like a website. So there are are certain things that for 2,000 years have just been how we follow Jesus, around a table. And I do not think that's going to change. If it does change, we will resist because the church needs to be a prophetic witness of embodied reality for the future. Now, we have to come together on Sabbath, and we sing together, and we read scripture, and we listen to teachings, and we pray together, and above all, we eat bread and drink wine together around a table, and we remember Jesus. This is the way Jesus taught us. We think the future of the church is like that, not less like that. Now, to end, I, I, wanna, I want us to sit up straight and take a deep breath. I want to lead us in just a short little meditation as we end, because I said a lot of stuff there. But I believe that I know that this resonates for a lot of you. I think hospitality is, <clears throat> is, is going to have such a resurgence as we, as we start to regather or start opening up that I think we have a possibility of being on the, on the front end and, and seeing like maybe even a mini renewal or revival or awakening happen as we bring people into our homes. But as we end, this is how I want us to end. Right now, God makes a space for you. See, it's true that while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. That he brought us in even when we were enemies. That's true. But it's also true that God continues to make space for us. Right now, with all of our stuff, God makes space for us in all of our unprocessed mess. God makes space for us with all of our unresolved anger. God makes space for us with all of our flighty pursuit for the next thing that will make us feel something. God is, holds space for us even with all of our fatigue. Silence is about that that we talked about last week. It's realizing that God is making space for us. So last week, Ruthie Kim, who's on our sermon team, <clears throat> texted me and said as she was praying for today in this sermon, as I sent her my notes, she said this thing that came to her mind was Psalm 84, that psalm that says that the sparrow makes a nest and a swallow has found a home. And this whole entire verse is about the sanctuary of God, the presence of God. And a swallow moves quickly. Swallows migrate suddenly, and they come back suddenly. They leave suddenly, come back suddenly. Swallows, like, you know, they can't be tied down. They can't bother with that kind of stuff. And maybe you feel like that right now. You move around a lot. Maybe it's physically you've moved around a lot. Maybe even spiritually you've moved around a lot. You've come and you've gone. And in your coming and your going physically or spiritually, that distance has happened between you and Jesus. Distance that you feel in your body. Distance that you know spiritually is there. Distance where you're like, you're curious of Jesus. You really wish he'd look at you as you're hanging on a, on a sycamore tree and say, I want to dine with you. You want space for there to be reconciliation. What's great about and beautiful about this psalm, Psalm 84, is that even a swallow has found a home in God. Even the little, the little birds that are bouncing around everywhere. 
God makes space for the swallow. If you feel like you've come and gone too many times, there's still a place for you. There's still a home for you and God. Jesus holds this space open for you. It says in Revelation that he stands on the door and knocks. And he wants to come in and dine with you and sup with you and commune with you. He, this is his desire. And if we're ever going to be people who practice hospitality in the way of Jesus, we first have to say yes to the invitation of God for him to make space for us. Where we're at right now, with all of our mess, all our incompleteness, for God to make space for us. Lord, as, as the worship team comes up, as we make space for you right now, we just realize that you've been making space for us. You've been holding the space. There are so many of us, like these little swallows, that come and go, that buzz around, that are super fast, that mentally buzz in and out, that emotionally buzz in and out, that spiritually buzz in and out, that even physically buzz in and out. And the feeling of that sometimes is energizing, but most of the time it's restlessness. Like I don't have a home. I pray that we would find rest in you, God. You, pl- you make a place, you make a home for us. Even in our franticness, even in our, all of our pain, even in all the, the thoughts that we have, you make a space for us to be with you, to be at home with you. Thank you for your hospitality, God. If there's anyone right now that, that feels that they have been either far from God or you just need space like Zacchaeus to come home to, to God, to come home to Jesus, to make your home in Christ, maybe for the very first time, there is space for you to do that right now. In your own language, even just say a prayer like Zacchaeus prayed and say, Lord, I've sinned in this way or that way and I receive you as my savior. The one who died and rose again that I would live in you for eternity. Draw us near you, God. Thank you for your space. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.